30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard Harry Nielsen once sang, One is the loneliest number. And yet so much of mysticism is absolutely obsessed with this idea of ultimate oneness. You've probably heard the classic joke where the Dalai Lama walks into a pizza shop and says, Can you make me one with everything? Now, once upon a time, your favorite wizard had a brief psychedelic brush with cosmic oneness. And I gotta say, I agree with Harry Nielsen. It was lonely. It was boring. There was nobody to kick it with. So while I try not to practice any sort of consistency in my belief systems, I must say, I'm feeling the pull of pluralism. I like options. And options can coexist without struggle, without strife. If you just reject the old Highlander fallacy of there can be only one. So let's move on from this monologue and introduce the dialogue that you're about to enjoy. My guest today is the pagan philosopher-scholar Cadmus, author of True to the Earth, Pagan Political Philosophy, a professor of philosophy by day and practicing ceremonial magician by night. Cadmus weaves his many areas of expertise into a beautiful braid of a book, showing how the transition from oral polytheistic to literate monotheism has reduced our world in unfathomable ways, changing how we think, talk, and worship truth. Well, I, for one, and one for all, have had it with this monomaniacal nonsense. So I invite you to join Cadmus and me in an enchantingly oral conversation as we learn how to think like a polytheist. Cadmus, welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's my pleasure. What's our magic word? So I think the magic word should be cosmos. Cosmos. One, two, three. Cosmos. And why cosmos? So... Nowadays, we have a tendency to talk about everything that exists as a universe, which has this implication of everything being united or singular. Whereas there's this older term, feels more old-fashioned, it's actually an older ancient Greek term, cosmos, uh, which comes from an even older word for uh, woven hair. And in fact, it was the the hair, uh, sort of the braids that were woven in horses' manes. So it has this image of many different things being brought together, being woven in and out of each other with increasing complexity and sort of beauty over time. I love that. I think it's funny, too, because universe is that classic, almost cliched thing of, oh, the universe wants this for me or wants that. And it's so singular, whereas cosmos, the cosmos might want a bunch of different things for you. And which one are you then going to trust? Yeah, precisely. Right. So one of the the key commitments in in, uh, my book is this idea of an irreducible pluralism, right? So, and it it applies to the gods. There are many gods, there are many truths, 
there's no one sort of message and there's no one standard by which we can judge what we should or should there's no unified theory of everything yeah precisely Mm -hmm. so your book is true to the earth pagan political theology can you give us a an overview of what the book is about and how you came to write it yes absolutely so uh my day job is as an academic in philosophy and some of my work involves the transition in ancient cultures and it it also happens in non-ancient cultures but what i look at is specifically ancient greece the transition from a oral society with no writing to a society with writing and how that changes the way we can think and the things we can think about and it also forces certain changes to occur so what i began to see was that some of the problems we face and I think the the failings of our culture and the dangers of our cultures, a lot of modern cultures, come from some of these changes that happen through literacy and through writing. Not to say that literacy or writing is a bad thing, but there's a price to be paid. We need the anti-literacy poster campaign (laughs) where it's just celebrities (laughs) and they're throwing books in their garbage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly not not my message. Don't read to your children. (laughs) Just tell them a story. But there is a power to to spoken culture uh, and to these oral cultures. And I began to see that there were insights in oral cultures that tend to get flattened and lost and, and even suppressed by the way that we think when we think in a a fully sort of written culture. And then I noticed, so in in my own life, I'm a practicing ceremonial magician, and I'm also a a committed pagan and polytheist. And I start to notice that what I took to be central insights of polytheism were connected to what an oral culture would think was obvious, and a writing culture would think was very unlikely or strange or even very hard to think at all. So this was sort of the foundation. Uh, So it's an attempt to restore what I take to be some of the major insights of pagan culture by looking at oral cultures and what orality, what an oral culture would have seen in the world when they looked at the world. And how, and can you give us some examples of that, of how oral cultures viewed the world in a way that we we don't now and are far removed from? Yeah, so uh, simple assumptions that we make. Uh, that seem so self-evident that they don't even have to be justified is that uh, truth is singular. So if you want to know the the truth uh, about a thing or the nature of a thing, you imagine there's some sort of singular representation or, or statement or something that can capture that truth. There's like a canon out there somewhere where there's the the original version of the book and you can go back yeah. to it. Yeah, and, and maybe we don't yet have it, but it's still there as something that we think is achievable, yeah. right? Or is written into the nature of reality, right? That everything is one thing and that there's a, a truth that can be derived that is singular. Whereas for uh, oral cultures, and this is a characteristic of, of what it means to remember something in orality. How do you pass something on from generation to generation? Well, what makes something memorable is that it is concrete, but also that if you have something new that's brought into the oral culture, it has to be uh, sort of understood through relation to other things that are already understood. In other words, it's a relational system. So what a thing is is its relation to many other things. And when you add a relation, when you add something new, you change the thing that has the new relations. This is what happens in their poetry. 
right? If you have a new line of poetry, it means what it means because of the way that it echoes what's already happened and the way that it sort of projects what will come later, right? There's this echoing framework where there's no one singular uh, structure or meaning. That might not have been as clear as it could have been, but... Uh... No, 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 that's great. And uh, the thing that's so funny that it reminds me of is almost like blockchain in a way. And I'm not trying to be the guy that says, you know, blockchain everything, but that's that idea of it. It becomes part of this mesh and part of this network and the stories stack on top of each yeah. other yeah. in a way that I think you lose when you have a book that can just be edited. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you if you think about, you know, Homer is the best example of this. Homer, so you know, the, <laughs> right? Homer in ancient Greece, right? The Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, they were originally oral. We have them in writing now, but for hundreds of years, they were preserved and passed on only in oral uh, form. And we talk about ancient epics as starting, you know, in media race, in the middle of things, uh, as if this is some stylistic decision. No, every story for an oral culture is in media race, right? It's always in the middle of things. And we also talk about it as if uh, you know, we're, we're, we're lacking the one ultimate story that was being told. These are fragments. But the thing is that every story in an oral culture is a fragment. Right? Uh, you see this in the, the Homeric hymns, these ancient hymns. Every hymn ends, and there's hundreds of them. Every hymn ends by saying, and now I'll praise you to the, the god or goddess that it's, it's praising, and another god also. And it constantly says, and another god also. Because there's always another chain. It never ends. Right? It's there's leaving this... that connective tissue for something yeah. else to fit into. And... Like like the braid, right? Yeah. It constantly moves on to yet another story. The same thing happens in Homer, right? It moves from one story to another to another with no one story having priority, right? No singular structure or final message. It's this sort of increasing complexity along the chain. Which is funny because that's that's a little bit how... I see modern paganism these days. You go into an occult bookstore and there's so many different topics and cultures and things all move together. And I think we're starting to embrace that, at least hopefully, whereas before in the depths of theosophy and stuff, there was always this idea that there was a, an ascended master on a mountaintop somewhere that had that one tablet that was going to just lay down the true natural laws of existence and and everything. Yes, and yeah. Not, you know, the, the, somewhere out there that existed. The the canon was secure rather than the uh, the sprawl that we have now where that, that's kind of creeping into all of our political discourse as well. Absolutely, right? So there was this, you know, there was this idea that, well, you know, this is the truth, whatever it may be, right? This theosophical approach or whatever the case may be. Uh, and now certainly uh, you have this multiplication of different approaches but you still so one of the funny things is that a lot of our contemporary paganism there's, there's a few different elements but one is that a lot of it takes its start from sort of state versions of paganism in other words if you think about the the olympians right so zeus is king of the gods and yada 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 the dogmatic versions of this were supported by certain governments in greece in order to have control over the common people's sort of religious and magical practices, right? It was a way of co-opting what had been uh, traditions and practices that were much more diverse and much less centralized. So there was a centralizing of religion. 
and this then sort of develops further once we have things like the philosophy of Plato, which allows for a very unified and reductive approach. This is the transition that you talk about in the book from the high pagan period to the late pagan yeah, period, where yeah. it might look the same because we're familiar predominantly with the late pagan, yeah. but you're saying that there's a very important distinction that gets glossed over and the late pagan ends up yes, having yeah. more centralized and eventually monotheistic. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I, I basically claim that, you know, late paganism tends to be monotheistic in its metaphysics and theology, even if it's officially polytheist. And you see this, I think, really easily in Neoplatonism. Right? Neoplatonism will talk about many gods, but all of these gods will be in, in most forms of, of Neoplatonism. There are some people who would object to this. But by and large, Right. Uh, all these gods are still reducible to ultimate origins and, and ultimate foundations. There's still the one truth of the universe rather than a pluralistic view of a cosmos. And yeah, there's there's political implications for these types of views. Yeah. So what is that? Uh, how does that? What are those political implications? I guess is what I'm trying to ask is how does this metaphysics shape? political discourse and the way that people behave in structured societies. Yeah, so there's a few different versions of it. One, before uh, uh, we started recording, we were talking about purity, and uh, purity is one of them. Uh, in order to have a, a concept of, of what is pure and what is impure, you have to have the idea that there is one way that things should be, whatever we're talking about, right? There's one way that uh, your religious practices should be. There is the right way. Right. And then anything else will be in some way impure. Uh, so uh, what I call politics of purity arise from ultimately what I would say is a monotheistic basis, the basis that there is one truth to how things should be done. Right? So what you end up with then are things like uh, uh, really uh, viral and, and, and sort of dangerous nationalisms that have the idea of a pure culture or a pure sort of uh, uh, nation. Right, which feeds into you know racism and so on and so forth, or is based on racism. Right? So these things are, uh, in my opinion, heavily monotheistic because they have this idea of purity that has no real place in a fully pagan or polytheist uh, framework. Right? There'd be types of purity, like you wash your hands before you eat. Right? That doesn't mean your hands are absolutely pure. The idea of absolute purity is meaningless within a pagan context but there's still not the one structured way of saying let's do this yeah it's yeah. the thing that i've always found with trying to be interested in hindu mythology is that it's very hard to figure out what is the the one version of this story that is the canonical pure one because there's so many different versions and in one lineage ganesh is like this and another one ganesh is like that and it always reminded me of marvel comics if you go in and you're trying to say okay but wait what is what is the character of Spider-Man? It says, well, are you talking about Amazing Spider-Man or yeah. the Spectacular yeah. Spider-Man? Are you talking about the 80s? Are you talking about the 90s? Are you talking about Ultimate Spider-Man? Are you talking about the films? Depends on where you are in this vast matrix of stories that all overlap, but there is no single one that you can point to and say, this is it. This is this is the pure. Yeah, and it's source. embracing that matrix, embracing that web or that weave is one uh, approach to it that is, that is the, the sort of cosmos pagan mm -hmm. approach to it versus the instinct that many people have which is to figure out all right which ones can we dismiss and what's the right one right so the search amongst the many stories for the right search 
that has that sort of uh, monotheistic inspiration, looking for the one dominant reductive truth. And this then has, you know, implications for, for politics as well, where if you, you know, you can have the best intentions in mind, but if you think that you can arrive at the one way society should be structured, the one right way to live, even if you have what seems like a pretty good idea, you're going to be engaging in something that is fairly violent, right? Yeah. That has to do away with anything that doesn't fit that one model. Well, if you, if you have answer. the true source of information, then why should you compromise? That's just diluting the source. So yeah. you obviously need to not compromise and just eliminate the competition, yeah. Yeah. which is very different than saying we have different approaches and let's find a happy medium. Yeah, I'm, one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is this idea of counsel and wisdom through counsel. So, for example, a traditional Akan uh, society has uh, these uh, uh, epigrams and, and, and uh, uh, sort of mottos that are meant to capture a lot of their wisdom. And uh, one of these mottos is that uh, wisdom does not reside in one head. Right? So it's literally impossible for one person to have wisdom. It's always in counsel that wisdom exists. And another is that one head does not enter into counsel, right? It's literally impossible for counsel to occur with only one head. Don't put all your person. eggs in one basket. Yeah. You, gotta, you gotta keep it split out and diverse among the group to yeah. find the, the true wisdom. Of that. Yeah, so this idea that there's no one reductive truth goes along with the idea that there's no one wisdom that I can fully grasp myself. I'm that is always great... going to be uh, 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 limited in what it is I can understand. I think that's good relationship advice. Okay. I, think, I think every yeah. couple, or more than couple, but should have that like over the doorway as a reminder of it's never going to be one person has the, the power, the, the wisdom. It's it's the shared thing and it's the interaction between yeah. the two. Yeah, for sure. Um there, yeah, there's that need for interaction and relationships with others, right? That that go uh, beyond sort of your own uh, dogmatic commitments, right? So what I would what I would love your thoughts on is it seems like there was a transition point where the orality moved into written culture and that mm -hmm. that changed things. And I'm curious if you think that we're also in a transition point now where it seems like we're moving from perhaps a written culture into a digital culture, which is introducing new strands of complexity. Yeah, I, I've, I've certainly thought about this, and it's a difficult question to answer because um, there are elements of orality that return with digital culture. You see this with like YouTube and podcasts mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, where things that uh, in the past you might have been reading on a blog, you now instead listen to people talking about it. So there is a and return. Sweet, sweet, dulcet tones. Yeah, <laughs> let's hope, right? There is a, a return to, uh, to a type of uh, orality. But I don't think this gets away from the fact. So there, there's an increased complexity, right? There may be uh, fractures uh, in the, the dominance of a more sort of strictly literary culture. Uh, but it doesn't get away from the fact that uh, we're still living in and raised by a culture where our concepts are so heavily influenced by literacy. Yeah. So, like, the way these things play out is that, like, models of truth tend to be visual models. Why? Because, you know, when you read, you look, right? So to, to know is to see, right? You get all of these visual models. 
and you know uh, concepts of what is clear and unclear become based on visuality and and singularity uh, whereas like in the book i mentioned that if you work from an oral model from a, a listening model you can hear many things at once without it being chaos mm-hmm. whereas it's much harder to have a concept of seeing many things at once without it being chaos or confusing right so seeing we move towards the singular you want to see the one thing with clarity whereas orally in terms of auditory you can hear a, a vast uh, symphony a choir and it's not chaos mm-hmm. it, it actually adds to the beauty without being one thing being reducible so yeah i mean i think that this is a, a an element that we're still stuck with even with the move to digit sort of the digital framework but if you look at i mean ancient greece is such a good example of this just because it's one of the cultures where we most clearly see the movement from morality to literacy. Uh, and literacy wasn't imposed externally, which often happens, and that sort of muddies the transition. Um, but uh, the effect of literacy on thinking in ancient Greece took like 300, 400, 500 years before you begin to fully see its implications for the way people think, right? The conceptual implications. So look 500 years in the future and figure out what digital sort of technology has done to the way we think and that would be uh, uh the transition that we're engaging it's in. all going to be an oral culture it's going to be everyone just listening to my podcast yeah <laughs> exactly we'll have, right? we'll have a unified oral culture yeah. around it, this podcast it'll be a slightly better reality it'll right be, it'll through, be slightly through better podcast, right definitely weirder <laughs> Yeah. All the future listeners are nodding their heads in agreement. Yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, it's much weirder. Whatever but it, I mean, it's so hard to anticipate those kinds of things. If, right. if you imagine, uh, the printing press is another good example of this. If you ask what was the most powerful effect of the print, printing press, one not that controversial answer, sort of what was the outcome of the printing press, would be hundreds of years of warfare. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for the people who we're first dealing with the printing press to see the war, like written into the technology, Mm -hmm. right? The way in which, you know, printing the Bible and local languages would lead and so on and so forth, right? All these strange cultural and political implications of it. And we're just catching up to that now with the, you know, the the rapid growth of social media and then the countries where that has taken over and become the default news network and is so rife with misinformation. And, you know, I think think written culture in the historic sense has a sort of permanence to it. Even yeah. though a book can, can degrade, the book that you looked at this morning will be more or less the same book that you look at next year if it's yes. sitting on yeah. your shelf. Whereas the website that I'm visiting can change and there's corrections and yeah. there's updates and that page goes down. But I'm, I'm, you know, Twitter is a feed. Twitter is so much more liquid, even though there is writing. Yeah, and it's constantly flowing, right? It's constantly that, flowing. That feed. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and that permanence is a key aspect of the way that our thinking shifts with literacy, right? That we move from seeing reality as fundamentally defined by change, constant change, right? And unpredictable change to uh, a contemporary view, you know, contemporary being the last 2,000 years or so, right? But a contemporary view where change is seen as being accidental, as if the things that are real are the things that don't change, right? Mm -hmm. So think about our concept of laws of nature, which uh, has all kinds of problematic aspects anyway. But laws of nature, well, what is nature? It's going to be that structure that doesn't change. Rather than all the sort of blooming, buzzing, shifting, 
flowing elements that uh, are constantly changing. So for an oral culture, uh, what is real is the changing. For a literary culture, what is real is the, the stable and unchanging. Uh, and this causes distortions, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, you have so to, you have to resist the change. You have to. Yeah, it's, yeah. You're, it's yeah like ch- a, change is seen as the enemy. Absolutely, you're like the, a silent film character yeah. that's running around and trying to keep everything static, which is of course impossible. And so yeah. you're becoming more and more frantic to I offset mean, the change. That's, you just think about the nature of prediction, right, and predictability. Uh, one way to understand what a lot of technology and science is about, not that I'm anti-technology or science, obviously, just like I'm not anti- Smash the printing presses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like I'm not anti, like, reading or Burn writing. down the Amazon um, web services. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but one way to understand sort of what a lot of science and technology about is not just predictability, but the power and control that becomes possible when things can be made predictable Mm -hmm. right when you have the right framework that makes things predictable they become tools for your use Mm -hmm. right so when nature becomes predictable it becomes one step closer to just being raw material right it's just something that we can translate from you know a tree into energy right from this into that purely for our own purposes right so there's an aspect of control to that desire for predictability there's that idea of legibility yeah. where a state can a forest is very confusing to a state whereas mm-hmm. nice orderly cornfields you can figure out well what is the yield we're going to get from these and it's a lot easier to figure out what are the limited variables that we have and legibility of course um, yeah seems like a yeah. very writerly I mean, thing to say yeah you see the same thing with with the struggle of economics as a science right yeah. uh where the the struggle is to make human activities predictable right, right? to make them legible so you have these arguments like, oh, well, we can understand all economic actors as acting in their own best interests, and therefore they're all, you know, rational decision makers. And you're like, yeah, you try to make these things predictable. And it so often fails. <laughs> well, you have to distort them. That's, yeah, there's the old absolutely. joke in, uh, in physics where a farmer goes to a physicist and they're asking, I think, how many, how many cows can I store in my bar? And he goes, well... Assuming spherical cows, then yeah, and it's like, of course the cows yeah. aren't going to be spherical, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you're always trying to round off those edges and come up with the model. Yeah, which I I, I don't want to get into the uh, the thing where magic makes science this evil straw man. Oh no, yeah, and but, I mean, go ahead. But I think that there is something to be said there where science is often about removing variables and carving it down and figuring out what pieces. And we're going to do it a hundred times and figure out what's repeatable. Whereas magic is saying, well, I've only got one chance to do it because it's my life and I'm trying to make something happen and I don't yes, get yeah. to do it a hundred times in a row and tweak all the variables. So how can I make that happen and, and ride the pattern rather than trying to enforce the pattern? How, yeah. can I, how can I dance the tango? And also the difference between looking for the consistent and predictable versus looking for the unpredictable, right? Yeah. In, in a way, the uh, you could say that the magical approach, this probably isn't always true, but to a large extent, is more interested in the unpredictable, the, the, the unexpected, right? And maybe provoking the unexpected. Uh, or sort of riding the wave of the unexpected. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there, there's a different sort of uh, perspective on that, I think. One of my favorite books that I've read in the last uh, five years was about the science of surprise. And I read it with my mouth agape the whole time going, oh, this is what I've been calling magic. Because when you 
when you go into something with high expectations and they're not met, then you experience disappointment. So the concert that you've been really looking forward to, but then you go and you're like, oh, right, it's a big concert at Madison Square Garden. It's security's annoying, the yeah, lines, yeah. everything's expensive. Like, it's not as rapturous and amazing versus the thing where you go in with zero expectation. Your friend said, I have a, a free ticket to a play. Do you want to come with? And you go, all right. And you show up and you see this work of art that just blows your mind and that's delight yeah and so there's something i think about magic where we set ourselves up for delight by letting the cosmos not the universe know what it is that we're looking for but being open to the form in which it takes yeah it's it's not ordering a pizza and you're expecting a domino's guy to show up in the next hour but you're saying there's a lot of kinds of pizza in the world and maybe one of those slices will come my way yeah absolutely i there's there's an overlap with some of um, what I'm up to in the the book in terms of the concept of values and what it means for something to have value. We've we've largely sort of flattened out the concept of value uh, to the extent where we think that we could like choose our values, right? That like things matter to us because we've chosen to care about them. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a weird perspective. If you think about the experience of care, you care about things first. And that's what you make your choices based upon, right? Care and valuation is the basis of choice. Emotion, emotion comes first, and then logic is used to justify that. But we often neglect the emotional component, and yeah. so we just latch on to the logical component and say, no, I made these decisions with my logical brain. I am Yes, smart. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you talk... You hear people talk and they talk about, uh, uh, you know, their values of, as if these are things that they have crafted and chosen themselves. Yeah. And it's, it's very strange, um, especially from the, the sort of ancient pagan viewpoint, uh, where value, if you look at sort of the, the etymology of the words, too, I'm a little obsessed with etymology. Oh, I love like it. Um, Magic words all they, the way down. They tie into things like... Uh, to shine and fire and this idea of sort of calling, right? What calls out to you. Mm. Uh, and if you look in, you know, uh, uh, ancient Greek pagan culture, uh, for a thing to have value means that it has reached out and called to you, right? So this idea of a calling is tied in fundamentally to valuation, right? Things are valuable to you because they've spoken to you, right? Not because you've chosen them, They've chosen you, right? So that idea of emotion, too, in in the ancient context, uh, emotions were understood largely as coming from outside of us, very often from gods and goddesses. Uh, So when you feel an emotion in response to something, that's a conversation reality is having with you, right? That's uh, the world reaching out to you and pulling at you. So that idea of uh, this deep interconnectedness that is experienced in valuing something in you know caring about something uh i think is something that that becomes very uh, emptied out in our contemporary world often and in our contemporary world what do you think if you had to distill it down what are the lessons right now for today that we can apply that we can do to bring some of this uh polytheistic pagan metaphysics into um, not just our thinking, but perhaps our actions. Yeah, so there, there's a few key elements. Uh, one is this interconnectedness. Uh, we tend to, and this ties into dualism too, right? That This idea that we're like souls or minds in bodies, driving bodies around. 
Um, uh, and the, the ancient cultures saw who and what we were, again, with that sort of web image as this, uh, this node of interconnected threads. Uh, and we're therefore connected to everything around us as well. And who we are is tied into this connection. Now, this goes along with uh, what I talk about in terms of ancient animism. Uh, animism is sort of having a, a renaissance right now, uh, although I, I, I try to make clear some distinctions between contemporary animism and, and, and ancient animism. But the idea that everything is in some sense living uh, and therefore, if what we are is this interconnected web and everything around us is living, we're also part of larger sort of ongoing events and, and processes. So, you know, what can we do in our contemporary culture? Well, oddly enough, the first step is to begin listening. And I mean this in the widest range, not literally just with our ears, yes. and listening to the world. Yeah. Right. And the way in which... The world tells us who we are and what is important and what has to be done, right? What is calling to you in the world around you saying, pay attention to me, right? This, this matters. This uh, is something that, that requires a response. I think we spend a lot of time keeping ourselves isolated and ignoring these calls, right? The, the world sort of well, We have a lot of distracting calls all around us now. There's yes. a lot more yeah. that's trying to grab our attention that is maybe trying to exert value on us rather than having natural value that pulls us to it. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's certainly true, right? The, the world is full of these uh, uh, attempts to manipulate our attention, yeah. right? There's definitely a problem of attention here, for sure. So other messages for the, the contemporary world. Uh, I have a section near the end of the book where I talk about the concept of rights, sort of political rights. And one interesting implication of both our interconnectedness to the world around us and also uh, an animist view where the, the world is living is that, and we don't have to talk in terms of rights, but if we want to use this framework, is that the things around us have rights. Uh, one way to understand it is that uh, since everything in a pagan world is sort of alive and changing, everything can be understood as expressing a certain nature. Uh, and what this means is that at some base level, things are never as simple as the base level, right? Similar to like the, the round cows, right? For the, the mm -hmm. physicists talking about the cows in a barn. Um, things never are just at the base level, but from a base level, everything has a fundamental right to what I call expression, right? To live out its existence, and even a rock is living in this mm -hmm. sense, uh, expressing its own nature. Uh, and the way it does that is through its connections to everything else. Now, obviously, you know, if you drink water, you, you've taken something from something else. If you eat, right, there, there's a sense in which this can be very sort of nihilist. Well, taking and giving is sort of then what is the bond that holds that net together. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? So the idea is that we can commit ourselves so that the way in which we interact with the things around us is dedicated to, as far as possible, improving or uh, 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 propping or aiding their expression, whatever that may mean, right? So, you know, a sculptor who works with rock is in some way aiding the expression of that rock. Now, there's going to be no absolute answer as to which yeah. is a better or worse way to aid something's expression. But I do think we can see a, a, a difference between 
just sort of clear cutting a forest and, and burning it for fuel versus other possible approaches to how to interact with that thing's expression and, and existence in the world. So, yeah, I mean, thinking in terms of the way in which we are part of the self-expression of the things around us. Being in relationship with things. Yeah. You know, like, uh, yeah, it's like if we're all part of this web and we're all connected into the multiplicity and we're woven into the strands, it's thinking about the, the things that you're holding the hands of. Yeah. What is your relationship with them? Are you just grabbing from them and tearing them apart and then they're yeah. not going to be there anymore? Or are you part of an ebb and flow where yeah. I'm taking the calories in and I'm passing the waste along and that's being transmitted back into the earth at some point and yeah. coming back around again? Because I'm at a certain level, uh, our interactions in that way are part of larger interactions, right? And part of larger beings. Mm-hmm. And at some level, that is the gods and goddesses, right? Yeah. We're, we're part of this. And you can just think about it as like a living earth, for example, right? But we're part of these larger processes of growth and expression and existence. And the question is, how do you fit into that, right? How are your behaviors and your actions fitting into that? Uh, what are you contributing and what are you taking away? Yeah. And by doing, I, I often, I, I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about this concept, but how... By believing in something and participating in the rites and rituals of that, you are making up an intersubjective reality with all the other people that do that, and that is sort of the ground in which these gods live. Yeah, well, they have that footprint on the earth that exists of all of the people with their little home altars or their big stone churches or whatever it might look like, but it's those people with the idea of those gods in their heads that are the ones that are moving the earth around and reshaping reality in that god's image yeah uh and i i I would push perhaps against uh some uh, slight implications of that um with it being primarily in their heads right i i think that and this was part of my point about values being something in the world that call out to us but sort of the chain there is that what are the gods and goddesses for example or or many other things their ultimate values, right? Mm-hmm. So they're what call to us from the world. Right. Um, so, uh, but nonetheless, there's an overlap with what you were saying where to sort of ground some of this this uh, animist talk in the, the pagan sort of framework, uh, there's this idea that I, I offer of an event ontology. In other words, once we get into a purely written uh, uh, culture or, or primarily written culture and we move towards greater levels of abstraction and to freezing things in their nature, right? So what's real is what's stable, all this stuff. Uh, you get materialism, right? You get the idea that, you know, things are built out of some sort of basic components and yada, yada, yada. Um, so you get this materialist view. I think that the pagan sort of oral animist view fits much better with an event ontology in other words what things are are ongoing events of expressing and relating uh so it's not that i am some collection of stuff i'm a collection of activities right and i'm part of these larger activities now the where the the way it overlaps or, or the reason it came to mind with what you had said was that if you think about tradition you know i i sit down and i say a prayer or whatever the case may be what is that tradition it's an ongoing event, and it may have been ongoing for hundreds of years or thousands of years. 
And in that sense, you can think of it as an ongoing body. It's an event mm-hmm. of relations and expressions, just like you are, or just like that tree is. Or a river. Right? Yeah. Or a river, right? So, you know, tradition has this living, moving nature that we take part in, that we find ourselves within. Yeah. Beautiful. Let's close with a spell that people can, can do to um, bring these ideas into their own existence in some way. Ah, yeah. So I, I would just think of a, a, a fairly simple, uh, almost prayer. So Great. Something like uh, living world, living cosmos. Uh, may you speak to me today and may I hear what it is that you need from me. Beautiful. Thank you, Cadmus. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. For more of Cadmus, pick up a copy of his book, True to the Earth. Pagan Political Theology, out now on Gods and Radicals Press. And for more of this podcast as a ritual, just keep listening. We've got lots of episodes, past, present, and future, that are all unfolding simultaneously in this magical, multiverse-spanning ritual that I'm so proud to have you be a part of. Until next time, I'm Devin Person saying, Three's Company, Four's a Polytheistic Divinity. number that you'll ever do Two can be as bad as one It's the loneliest number since the number one